0: This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. Welcome to another episode of Preservation Oaks. In this series, we introduce you to professionals from museums, cultural, genealogical, and historical societies across the United States. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the program. Good day everyone, this is Sean Thomas Radcliffe coming to you from Salt Lake City and this is Preservation Oaks, the internationally syndicated original talk program on Microstream Radio, where we feature interviews with professionals from museums, cultural and heritage institutions, historical and genealogical societies across the United States. Thanks for listening. By the way, our main platform is preservationoaks.podbean.com but we're also on almost every podcast platform as well as Odyssey and YouTube. So wherever you listen to the program, I appreciate it very much when you like, comment, follow, or subscribe. We trust that people want to have a better understanding of these precious organizations. We make listeners aware of how the organization is supported, how each is unique to the communities they serve, what programs and events they currently have underway, and what services they offer to the public and their members. We believe this information is vital for people to know how to work with these organizations and how important it is to join, support, volunteer with, and donate to one or more of these core societies. Remember, your donations to these societies are tax-deductible. Each guest organization on Preservation Oaks brings with them a truly unique perspective around how they tell the story of their communities, how they continue to be relevant for the times in which we live, and what kinds of exhibits and volunteer opportunities they've created. This makes listening to each episode of the program interesting, fun, and diverse. If you're listening and you'd like to be a guest on the program, or if you have questions or comments about the program, Spin off an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. All right, that being said, let's get this show snapping. On October 1st, 1908, Henry Ford's Model T, a universal car designed for the masses, went on sale for the first time. On October 4th, 1965, Pope Paul VI became the first pope to visit the United States and the first to address the United Nations. On October 13th, 1990, The first Russian Orthodox service in over 70 years was held in St. Basil's Cathedral next to the Kremlin in Red Square, Moscow. Here's a birthday. Happy birthday to Molly Pitcher. She lived from 1754 to 1832 and was born on October 13, 1754 near Trenton, New Jersey. She was a water carrier at the Battle of Monmouth in 1778 during the American Revolution. After her husband, artilleryman John Hayes, collapsed, she took his place at his cannon. Thank God for people like Molly. Here's a couple of quotes. You know you're a genealogist if there's a courthouse programmed into your GPS. You know you're a genealogist if you have no problem substituting your great-great-great-grandmother's maiden name for your mother's in answer to a security question let me drink some tea some twining's tea i love twining's tea now you can email us anytime at preservationoaks at gmail.com preservation oaks is available for listeners on nearly all podcast platforms as well as facebook odyssey and youtube on our next episode of preservation oaks we'll be meeting with the douglas county historical society located in roseburg oregon They have a beautiful society home with a number of great things to see. They tell an important story of America and it'll be fun and interesting chatting with Dale Greenlee, the Vice President. For this episode, we greet Ms. Ann Rawlings, the librarian of the Old Fort Genealogical Society located in Fort Scott, Kansas. If you're a resident in the local area, this episode will help you understand what the society has to offer how you can participate and take advantage of the worthwhile events the society sponsors, and how to best support them by volunteering and donating. Here's a brief biography of our guest. Ann Rawlings' careers were as a teacher, medic, police dispatcher, administrative assistant, and co-owner of a training center teaching CPR and first aid. Ann retired, moved from Oregon to Fort Scott, Kansas, and found her passion. Welcome to the program, Ann. Thank you. And you you have a beautiful town with really cool buildings. I mean really cool. There's a couple that are just fabulous. You don't see those in other towns. The Scottish Rite Temple is very cool. Does the Genealogical Society keep the history of the town's buildings?
1: We do. In fact, we have started a filing cabinet where that we are researching homes and businesses and filing it over for anybody who needs to see it in the future.
0: Oh, that's great. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of your society?
1: Our society stems from history class at the community college. So many people want to stop the meetings that they were doing when they were working on projects at the college, and so they decided to start a society. And that was done in uh, May of 1974 by Keitha Bolander. And they were very, very active. They loved research. They loved bringing materials into the college because they used a portion of the college library. But they quickly grew out of the little space that they had. And so they've moved twice since 1974, but always expanded so much that they had to move to a larger location. And we have been at Memorial Hall now for, I think it's 15 or 16 years. And we have expanded so much that we need more room now.
0: Wow, that's great to hear. You're almost 50 years old, huh? Yeah. Wow, that's gonna be great in a couple of years to celebrate that. It will be. Can you tell us about the history of Bourbon County? Is it bourbon, like the liquor bourbon?
1: Yep, yep. just like Bourbon County, Tennessee. Okay. That's where we we were named after. Somebody came from Tennessee and wanted their county name as our county. Name. So The history of Bourbon County is very interesting. And there is so much history here. It started with Osage Nation, living in the southern part of Kansas. The mounds have dated them back 10 to 12,000 years. Whoa. I was given a third point by somebody I was doing, uh, well, I was deciphering an old journal. And then family wanted it. They couldn't read it. And so I've been deciphering it. So this gentleman used to go out and hunt for arrowheads. And he gave me one because it's also in an area that my twin brother and I are trying to get somebody to understand that they have an original mound city with, with everything is intact. There is nowhere in the world that has this kind of thing. So he brought me an arrowhead from that location, and I was able to identify it as ten to 12,000 years old. Wow. So that's why I know they... That long.
0: So, you have an untouched, unarchaeologically or otherwise dug mound city. Yes. Wow.
1: It is on property, and we're working with the owners to see if we can't get that here. This will change Fort Scott because we will have archaeologists from all over the world. We have what we call Birdman. Yeah. So, it is a a rock formation that is level with the ground. So it's only sticks up like three or four inches. Certain times of the year, you can see it plain as day. He has a staff in one hand, and then off towards the pond is a bird. Wow! And that's why we, but it has not been changed. The village area has never been contaminated. It is an archeological paradise.
0: You know, when I was a kid, Uh, I grew up in Illinois. And my mom and dad took me to, I think it was called Cahokia Mounds. And you went down there and you came into the museum and there was sort of a, you had to go up a floor or something. And there was sort of a a railing around a big open area and you could look right down into the mound and all the graves and skeletons.
1: Oh, wow. It was really cool. We we have several of mounds here. In fact, we know of one that was cut by a highway department. And so the archaeologists, the state archaeologists came down and they took the artifacts that they could find from what was cut. They left the rest of it alone. And those date back about 8,000 years.
0: Wow. Yeah, you and- got a gold mine there in terms of just history and, and benefit to the community.
1: And that's why we now call ourselves an archaeological center, because we have this information for archaeologists as well. Right. And, and we, I'll explain later on one of the things we actually did to get in the archaeological records, because that's a fascinating story, too. But the history of Bourbon County, the Osage Nation were known to be six foot tall or more mm. quiet people who loved land. The tribes were eventually pushed south into Oklahoma with many other tribes from the eastern United States. Hmm. Following the Indian Removal Act of 1830 and the Intercourse Act of 1834, which declared that the land west of the Mississippi belonged to the American Indians, the United States built a series of forts from Minnesota to Louisiana to enforce the, the promise of a permanent Indian frontier. However, when they moved the Native Americans across the Mississippi, the Trail of Tears. They came into this area, they called the Mississippi Indian tribe because they were numerous tribes, all bunched together. And, and so that is also really neat with the archeology span because we can find spear points and bowls and that sort of thing that all these other tribes would have been using or had lost on the trail. It's just, it's really cool with archaeology here. Bourbon County was settled as early as the 1840s, mostly by farmers and businessmen who were setting up communities. They weren't supposed to be here. They had to come anyway. In 1854, the Kansas Territory was organized and Bourbon County was established in 1855. Hmm. Their area would be free land for the Native Americans, but the thought of great farmland sent many Eastern farmers westward. The free land was not cost, It was land that was not to be settled by whites or Native Americans. It was just supposed to be left alone. Bourbon County is halfway down the east side of Kansas from Kansas City to the southeast corner of Kansas. The eastern edge of Bourbon County is on the Kansas-Missouri state line, which is about five miles from Fort Scott. Fort Scott is halfway between the north and the southeast edge of Bourbon County. The southern six miles of Bourbon County was part of the Osage Neutral Land, and it was changed to Cherokee Neutral Land, but was just commonly known as Indian Neutral Land. Mm. This area was free land where no one was to live. I said that before, but no one was supposed to live. The uh, solution was to bring in the dragoons because the fighting was going on. No one was supposed to live there and no one was going to leave. Needless to say, the Dragoons were to keep the fighting to a minimum, but this was not always easy to accomplish. And then we had the Border War, or Bloody Kansas, started once enough settlers arrived in the area. This was due to Missouri, the state to the east of Kansas, became nervous about the potential for Kansas to become a free state. Mm. The bushwhackers from Missouri and the Jayhawkers from Kansas were mortal enemies. They constantly went into each other's territory, killing burning homesteads and stealing livestock. Once Kansas became a free state in 1861, the border calmed down and the military left the area. Those who had been run out of the area by fighting returned to their homesteads because to them, it was theirs. The Civil War started later in 1861, and again, the border was not safe. This time, it nominated bushwhackers. But the Confederates who were attempting to take over Kansas. There were two forts, Fort Scott and Fort Lincoln, and two to three camps where soldiers were set up and guarded the cities, the citizens, the border and the military wagon trains on the military road moving supplies between major forts. So Bourbon County was the center of a large hub of goods being transported to the different forts that were being used by the Union troops. The Confederates wanted that those goods. They were willing to come in to Kansas. Now that Kansas was a free state, it was free for them to come in and, and kill and do whatever they did, which they accomplished quite often. Wow. And then after the Civil War, Bourbon County becomes a major railroad center to move agriculture and merchandise in four directions. Bourbon County is in the center of the United States, so made a perfect location for transport of goods. Now, I said that Bourbon County was in the center north and south of Kansas, and Fort Scott is the middle north and south of Bourbon County. You look on a map, and that area is the dead center of the United States. So when the railroads went in, they went all four directions. We were supposed to, it was lining up. We had as many as five railroad routes entering Fort Scott. Wow. An amazing amount of metal went down. But Chicago had a big fire, and all of the goods went to Chicago to build it up, and they decided to just keep building up Chicago, and Fort Scott missed out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They still have a couple of trains that come through, but not like what it used to be.
0: Kansas had it rough in the early days, huh?
1: You know, that's why I say we have to tell our history, because those who live here in Kansas don't have a clue how important their family lines were to us having Kansas and how hard they fought.
0: Yeah, my goodness. Can you tell us about the history of Fort Scott? Was it one of those forts?
1: It was. Fort Scott was originally called Camp Scott in honor of General Winsor Scott in 1842. The dragoons were sent to this location to calm the situation between the whites and the Native Americans. The Indian neutral land was south of Fort Scott, so the site of Camp Scott was in the perfect spot to be the protector of the land. The site was located on a high, flat mound with steep banks on the west, north, and east sides that fell to the Marmonton River. The south side was a gentle slope to the prairie land. So Fort Scott was among one of the lines of force established to keep the peace between the whites and the native americans. So that's why they were brought first to here in 1842 was to set up a camp which ended up being called fort later on where the dragoons could go out and make sure that everything stayed okay. With Fort Scott it was always the one that was to be attacked. There were so many times that bushwhackers came in and tried to burn down Fort Scott because Mm. they figured if they could burn it down, and this was early on and the Civil War, they figured that if they could burn down Fort Scott, then the trade couldn't go back and forth to the other forts. It would be an abandoned site, and then they would be able to come in farther than just the border of Missouri and Kansas. When the military left, they left, and then the Civil War happened, they came back as Union soldiers took over the community again, and, and made it a military town. With that, we had one of the largest hospitals, and that hospital still exists. It's, it's now the information center, the historic site. They could take care of all kinds of patients. So it was not only military, but uh, citizens who were helping, like running the wagons or, or whatever. They could be taken care of in the hospital. We even had Confederates who were allowed to mend in the hospital. Those that did not mend are buried at our Fort Scott National Cemetery. They needed to be buried somewhere, and that was the military cemetery. We are the only military cemetery that has Confederates buried in the cemetery. The Confederates did not get a historic cemetery. That's why there are so many small graves. Sites where they have fences around them. Yeah. That's where they were buried. And so they're all over. But our big national cemetery, if you look online, you'll see it called National Cemetery Number One. Yeah. We are not National Cemetery Number One. We are one of 12. And it happened to be that our name was the first on the list, but they were all instituted at the same time by uh, President Lincoln because he wanted a nice place for those who didn't make it to be interred. And it's it's beautiful. It's like Arlington. That's really a beautiful spot.
0: Wow. And they um, still maintain it today?
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We still have internments there.
0: Oh, good. So uh,
1: anyone that is military and wants to be buried in the middle of the United States are buried here. We have a lot of people from a lot of different states buried here. Wow. The cemetery had been used by the city. Just prior to the starting of the Civil War, they were trying to find a cemetery that they could put the citizens in, in a nice location. But then most of those people reinterred to what we call Evergreen Cemetery, which is a huge, nice, really nice cemetery. But they, uh, if they were not military, they were supposed to be moved. Now, there were some that had—they got to stay, and it was politics. But for the most part, it's only military then it's buried there, and so they have the rounded white headstones, and the Confederates have pointed headstones. and And the joke is, and I I don't know who came up with this, but they tell it every time we do the tour of the cemetery, that the reason for the pointed headstones for the for the Confederates is they knew that Union soldiers would be digging their grave site. They didn't want Union soldiers sitting on their headstones. So if you have a pointed <laughs> headstone, then it makes it very uncomfortable to sit on their headstone.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. my goodness. Yeah. So Fort Scott was a fort, and now the fort is still there with the cemetery, and a city grew up out of Fort Scott? Yes. Yeah. Very cool.
1: After the dragoons left, then the government sold the building. And as you see, these are big, big buildings. And so what they did is the citizens that were here, and there was only like five or six families that were here, actually purchased some of the buildings and it became their home. And and so those buildings have been used since 1842, especially the officer's court. We had Goodlander orphanage in one of them for years. So that site was still active, but the condition of of the buildings were getting to be pretty poor. And so citizens got together and decided to fix it up, make it look like it used to look like, except there isn't a, a parade ground. There's grass there now, and it's beautiful.
0: Very cool. That's so nice. Thank you for sharing that. Can you please provide the audience with an overview of the communities you serve, the variety of your membership, and the mission and objectives of your society?
1: OSGS, that's short for Old Fort Genealogical Society, and that's a mouthful, so we shorten it to OSGS, services all of Bourbon County, but since our name includes all of southeastern Kansas, because that's the end of our name, we service anyone who needs information we might have. There are only two genealogical societies in the near area. One is Pittsburgh, which is 30 minutes south of Fort Scott, and the other is Nevada, Missouri which is 30 minutes to the east. Both of these sites have materials that are specific for their area and work with OFGS as needed. OFGS's membership is mostly those who want to support what we do. We don't get a lot of volunteers from our membership. We currently have 77 members, of which 50% are local citizens. Okay. The others are from out state and other resource agencies. They don't ask for much, but they always pay their membership. The mission and objectives of our society, the mission statement of the Old Fort Genealogical Society is to collect, preserve, and disseminate genealogical and related historical, biographical, and heraldic data to create, foster, and promote research in these fields, to provide information and aid individual members in the use of efficient methods and principles of accuracy and thoroughness in research. To champion ethical standards and discourage and oppose incompetent, disreputed practices or researchers. To foster careful documentation and promote scholarly writing. And to issue publications. I had to read that part because I knew I'd forget half of it if I didn't.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's good. Boy, you get involved in almost everything in the community.
1: Yes, we try.
0: How did you get to where you are? How did you, you know, what's your background?
1: I was born and raised in Oregon in a small logging town with my folks, twin brother and younger brother. I graduated from high school and then college. I thought I would be a music instructor, but that wasn't what I wanted to do. Instead, I found out that I love to learn new skills. If someone was willing to teach me, I was willing to learn. I went on to be an emergency medical technician, a police dispatcher, administrative assistant, And finally, co-owned a training center where we taught different levels of CPR and first aid. When I retired, I did research for my grange and loved the exploring and gathering of information. When we were young, that was something all of us kids did in our household, and that stuck with me as something fun. Then my husband became ill with dementia, and I couldn't take care of him, so I was moving to my daughter's home in the Cascade Mountains. She called me while I was on my way up to say she had sold her house, and we were moving to Fort Scott, Kansas in six weeks. We didn't know anyone there, but we found an old Victorian home that needed a family to live in it. So we moved to Fort Scott in June 2019, and I was a member of Old Fort Genealogical Society by November after trying to locate information on our old house. That was it. I was hooked and read everything I could get my hands on about Fort Scott and Bourbon County. I love the history and the stories, and I love to tell others. So yes, I found my passion after retiring. I want to tell you, too, about the old house. And the reason I came down here was to research the old house. The research on the old Victorian took me in directions I would never have imagined possible. I thought that getting the names of those who held the deed to the property was the first step. This, I found had a very long list of names. I also wanted the tax listings of the property to see when the tax rate changed, noting when the home was built. The tax records were destroyed in a county courthouse fired, so that wasn't available. But this long list was still available. So I started researching every one of the owners to see who is noted as living at the address. I found nothing until I got to 1883. My mind was blown. The name on the deed, was an Anthony. I researched this one like crazy. What I found was that this particular Anthony was a sewing machine shop owner living at a different location, but his sister needed a respite house and everything matched. Susan B. Anthony loved to come to Fort Scott by Train and visit her favorite little brother. Oh my
0: gosh.
1: She is noted in the newspapers as staying in her respite house with her group and sometimes speaking to the public. What if this house was Susan B. Anthony's respite house? She would have walked on the same floors and opened the same doors that we do right now.
2: How
0: cool would that be? That is Um, very cool.
1: It it really is. And when I found it out, I was dog tired because we were cleaning it out, and I decided to sit down and research a little farther. And when I came across her name, I literally started crying.
0: No kidding.
1: (laughs) You know, because... It means so much to me, and to think that somebody that famous would have come to town, let alone could possibly been in my house.
0: Yep, that is very, very cool. Probably was in your house. That's amazing.
1: Yes, you know, others say no, your That was, was built in the 1900s, and I still want to hang on to this story.
0: (laughs) So what was Susan B. Anthony famous for?
1: She was women's rights for the most part, and her group was all women who would go out and do speeches to try and encourage women to speak up, become understanding of what they had, and they were giving up by being quiet.
0: And was it for suffrage, Um, for votes?
1: Yes. Yes, that's how it started. But she also had another agenda. Her family were Underground Railroad people. And so her brother that was in Kansas City, Kansas, actually helped with the other Underground Railroad up there. Our house, we have tried to locate the exact entrance, but there is a tunnel in our backyard. Oh, my. Um, So if that's the case, and there's two rooms, that is the oddest way to get to in the basement that would have been protected from anybody seeing it. And so that made it a little stronger for us. Even though in 1883 we we had the emancipation already, there were still people that were running away from slave owners, even though they were allowed to be free. If they didn't understand what that meant, or if they had slave owners that didn't tell them what that meant, then they didn't know. They were still there. But Susan B. Anthony also had an agenda for women, and that's to give them the ability to own property. Now, I know in the 1960s, when I wanted to buy a piece of property on my own, I wasn't allowed. I was a female. I was not married. How can you handle that? Well, back when Susan B. Anthony was here and helping women get property, there were almost as many women owning property as men a huge amount and it was split they were not segregated out of voting voting eventually came in but they were able to get out and protest and tell the husbands or the boyfriends what how they better vote so, you
0: know when i hear stories like this it's just awesome how far we've actually come as a country
1: absolutely
0: due to the hard work of a lot of people
1: it was and it was people who were not afraid to get out there and say how they felt I get tired of having it pop up, comments from people about how horrible everything is and how, you know, we just need to just stop talking to each other because it, you know, and it drums on and on and on. I think back to Susan Anthony. She stood up for something that she felt driven for. What is wrong with us now standing up and talking about what we're driven for? I agree. For me, it's history and genealogy, because without either one, we wouldn't be here.
0: Yep. Agreed. Okay. Completely agreed. Boy, what a story. There was also another serendipitous moment when you and I did our pre-conversation prior to the recording session, and you learned what the next episode of Preservation Oaks is. And that struck oh. me as well. Our next episode is in Douglas County, uh, Douglas County, Oregon, with the Douglas County Historical Society in Roseburg, Oregon. When I read
1: it on the paperwork that you sent me that this was going to be the next one, I just started saying yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. I grew up in Douglas County, Oregon, and I was at the north end. Roseburg was half an hour away. In fact, I went to college there with my twin brother. And I know where that building is. I know what it looks like. I know where it is above the Umpqua River. I also know that when my mother passed in 1976, that my twin brother and I took all of her research from the local area and our our local Native American tribe. We took all that information down to the Historic Society and down to that museum because we wanted to make sure her works were passed on to the next people that were gonna do the researching.
0: Yeah, and that and was so, not a planned thing on my part at all.
1: <laughs> well, you wouldn't have known, and I don't think you ever knew that I was from Oregon even. No. So we started talking. I know it wasn't planned. It's just coincidence and it's really cool because that is another area that is full of history. Little later on, but again, that area, has a lot of history in it, so that's going to be exciting.
0: Yes, it'll be a great episode. Thank you for that. What's coming up on the horizon for your society? Where are you headed next?
1: I have to say that I'm a dreamer with high goals. Some people say you don't need to dream, but I feel like if you don't have a goal for the future and far enough out, then you never get there. And so one of my goals for the near future is expanding OSGS, to house even more documents. We have so much stuff in storage that we can't even get to it. Mm. And that's a shame. People may need it for their research and we can't get to it. Where we are in Memorial Hall, we moved here in 2004 and we are in, I call it the lower level because basement sounds like a dark little hole. And we have windows all the way down the west side where we are. We are in one quarter of the areas that could be utilized there's no one utilizing the rest of the area and my goal is to open it up get another quarter opened up so then we'd be double our size and then when the material comes from texas on the Katy railroad we will need to open up the other half of of the area and that way we can partnership with Historic Preservation Association, Mm -hmm. which houses artifacts from Fort Scott, some of it from Bourbon County, but it tells the story of those who were here originally. And so we would have that under one roof because they have nowhere to show it except for the lobby of the county courthouse right now. And so that's just little items. But we want to fill this whole space and have all kinds of maps and meeting areas and giving instructions on people how to do research. A lot of people don't even know how to do research. If they can't figure it out on the internet, they can't do it. All and right. so we want to people know how to do that. Because I'm understanding now it's becoming a lost art, and that's a shame. Because we'll just play the same old sad stories over and over and over again.
0: I don't know that um, they teach kids in school anymore what the framework of society is in terms of you know, you're born and then there's a record and you apply for Social Security or something and there's a record and, you know, all of the various parts of government that, you know, keep records and where to find them.
1: Right. It's where to find it. And they're not being taught history in our schools. And so they don't even understand the history. They stopped doing, and I believe it's all of Kansas. I think it was the governor that wanted to do this, that they figure that the history was so wrong, why should we teach it? Oh, Well, our history is not wrong. It's sometimes those who are telling the history are wrong. And that's what I found out here. We have a lot of folk tales and people think it's true. It's not. It goes out on the internet. People assume it's right. Well, as we all know, the internet's not exactly right. Um, It's just an easier way to find a piece of information. So I want to be able to clear up those old stories. In fact, I've tromped on a few toes already because I said, look, that doesn't even make sense the way you're telling the story.
0: Yep, well, you would know. Also, you mentioned (laughs) something about the Katy Railroad and and getting some artifacts from somewhere.
1: Yes, so the Katy Railroad, or it was actually the Missouri-Kansas-Texas Railroad, and they shortened it to Katy, K-A-T-Y, And they still go through here. But in Texas, they had a museum and they had all of the paper documents for the Katy Railroad. So accidents, passenger lists, they have a truckload of paper goods that have been in storage, not safe. And they need somebody who is willing to take on the paperwork and organize it and get it there for people to come. People come from all over to read about the Katie and especially their, their history pieces of paper. And it's not available to those researchers at all right now. We are hoping within a year we will have all the way across the lower level of Memorial Hall and we will be able to house all of that information.
0: That's great. Are you, are you fundraising actively? What What kind of thing do you need? Do you need donations or, or volunteer work time? Or what do you need to make that happen?
1: We are not fundraising at this time, basically, because we don't have enough volunteers. The volunteers are what we're needing. And in fact, earlier this afternoon, I talked to a gal that wants to volunteer. And it was like, all right, let me show you around. We do need volunteers. And especially when we start expanding, we need to take things out of boxes and figure out where they belong. And, and so we'll need people who are willing to put those books back on the shelf and to uh, get the paperwork into filing cabinets and, and all those kinds of
0: things. Very cool. Yeah.
1: And donations, we always take donations. We don't, we had decided not to charge, it, it was taking way too long. To try and figure out how many pieces of paper they copied and how many hours we spent on somebody's research, all that sort of stuff. And it's like, you know what? We're sending it to you and whatever you want to donate and feel comfortable with what you received is up to you. And so then we'll get a check in the mail. Sometimes it's three months later. It's okay. They have acknowledged the work that we did. and, And that's okay.
0: Very cool. Can you tell us a couple of funny or interesting stories from the annals of your society's history?
1: I can. I have two stories. I also write the log. It's the Old Fort Log, which is a quarterly newsletter. Okay. And so I'm just looking in the old newspapers to find out what kind of a story I can come up with. And I like the unusual. I ran across a story a few months back. And it was so unusual and didn't sound possible that I told two of our volunteers the story and then closed up for the night. They were so curious, They went home and they looked up on their internet about this particular incident. And both of them brought their information in the next day and they got it from totally different sources. When you use more than one Researcher, you are more likely to have the true story yeah. come out. So, this is what happened in the story. The original story told of a cannon being set off by a couple of young boys, where a cannonball flew uphill through the middle of Fort Scott, went over a hotel, flew through the second story peak of a house, and landed on a neighbor's horse barn. Oh, oh and the house the cannonball went through was a local businessman's home where his wife upstairs was taking care of their young daughter. There even was a photograph that we eventually found with the hole in the peak of the house. Oh my. Think of this tall two-story peak, and it was right underneath the top of the peak. So I kept researching, and I, I published what, what they had found, and the fact that uh, that I hadn't found any more of it, and then when one of the volunteers came back, said I found some more about that cannonball. Well, basically, Price was leader of the of the Confederate Army group, okay, and he end of of the Civil War. This was the last campaign of any of the Confederates trying to come over into Kansas and take the Confederacy West. They started clear at the north corner of, of Kansas and the southwest corner of Missouri. And they, they went back and forth across the border. And so by the time, well, their goal was to come burn down Fort Scott. That was always the goal of all of them. Anyway, they were chased east at the north end of Bourbon County. And when they were chased east, then Price. Figured out he couldn't outrun the Union. And he had, I think it was an 11 mile wagon train that he was trying to cart all of his equipment and that sort of stuff in. He ended up just across the Missouri border, straight east of Fort Scott. He stopped and they burned everything in their wagon train. Oh. Six cannons that were salvaged and brought back to Fort Scott. Well, everybody was celebrating the fact that price dissolved at that point, and there were no other Confederates that would be coming around. And so there were two soldiers who went down to one of the cannons. And one of them said, look, there's a string hanging out of that. Let's light it and see what it does. Not enough, cannon was loaded. And so they shot it off. One guy was knocked backwards. Another guy had soot all over his face. And by the trajectory, we can figure out exactly where that cannon was sitting. And and that particular cannon is on display at the historic fort site.
0: Oh, so, that is cool. Uh,
1: it's just, you know, one of those things of you find a little piece of information and it grows bigger and bigger and bigger. And that one was like really a cannonball through the peak of your house.
0: No kidding. Did anybody uh, save that cannonball?
1: Yes. Yes. It was in the family for a long time.
0: Fantastic.
1: So, in fact, I said at the end of my other story was, it goes to show, just because the enemy was has left doesn't mean that all is clear. Check before lighting.
0: Boy, that's true. <laughs> 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 so what kinds of exhibits do you have on display?
1: One of them, the archaeology came out about 25 years ago. Shirley Heard, one of our longtime volunteers, took on a challenge, and that was to try and find out about Mayhew Cemetery, get the exact location, and get the names of those who were buried there. The problem being that in the late 1960s, the property owner was told to bulldoze the site because... They could use it for grounds because the cemetery wasn't being kept up. And so that's what they did. So when I came along, I asked if there wasn't something that we could do that I could do to help somebody out. And I was sent to Shirley. So I got to work with Shirley and found out that she was looking for people. She had found like 173 or 4 people. And I came along and she found one more name and I found the last name. Through this, she wanted a plaque for this cemetery, not down in the cemetery spot, because it floods. And it's also behind locked gates, so you can't get down to it. There's nothing to see. However, she was determined that everybody was going to know about Mayhew Cemetery. It was predominantly an African-American site that most of the people that were buried there, the families have left town. And so the last burial, I believe, was in 1932, something like that, started hmm. in the mid-1880s. And and so I was able to help her because I got my twin brother, who has a doctorate in archaeology, to help with where do we go, what's the paperwork we need, what can we do, what can't we do, that kind of thing. We ended up walking the area, found two burial sites, not just one, and the names of the people that would have been buried all show up as Mayhew Cemetery. We were able to figure out that approximately 400 or more people are buried in that site. And the only way you're going to find them is if you find them recorded on a death record somewhere. We have a bronze plaque with all the names on it and a reader board that will sit next to it in our big center area in front of the fort and tell the story about mayhew cemetery
0: that is really great hey i'm sorry to interrupt dan but it's time for our first break for a few minutes stay tuned we'll be right back after these important messages
3: Remember that feeling of wonder when you learned something fascinating about the past for the very first time? The Old Fort Genealogical Society is bringing the past back to life. Their goal is to collect, preserve, and disseminate knowledge and information with reference to genealogical and related historical, biographical, and heraldic data on behalf of the people of Fort Scott and Bourbon County, Kansas. Be a part of the action by volunteering and supporting the Old Fort Genealogical Society. Visit them on the internet at ksgenweb.org backslash society backslash FTScott and learn more about this valuable local nonprofit organization. Donate, join, become a member and visit them today in the Memorial Hall at 221 South National Avenue, Fort Scott, Kansas 66701.
4: It's time for Preservation Oaks, Book Shorts. Book
0: Shorts is a segment of the program where we quickly introduce listeners to authors and books which satisfy your love of history and genealogy, help you with your own research, and finally help you improve the depth and wisdom of your unique family story. On this segment of Book Shorts, we're very privileged to be joined by author Robin Rogers Healy, Ph.D., who is the editor of an excellent book entitled Quakerism in the Atlantic World, 1690-1830. to 1830. This book is the third book in a three-book series called The New History of Quakerism. Each book is written by a different author. In addition to Dr. Healy, contributors to this volume include Richard C. Allen, Aaron Bell, Erica Canella. Elizabeth Casden, Andrew Fincham, Sidney Harker, Rosalind Johnson, Emma Lapsansky, Werner, John Mitchell, and Jeffrey Plank. We selected the third book in the series for this book short segment because it deals with Quakerism on both sides of the Atlantic in England and North America during the long 18th century. However, if you want to complete a deeper dive into Quakerism's history, The other two books in the series are well-reviewed. Dr. Robin Rogers Healy, Ph.D., has been involved with authoring over 14 books, many about the history of Quakerism and Quakers. She has more awards, honors, and accomplishments than we can cover in the short time we have here. You can find out all of that at the Trinity Western University website, which is www.twu.ca backslash profile, backslash Robin-Rogers-Healy, and you spell that R-O-B-Y-N-N-E-Dash Rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S-Dash Healy, H-E-A-L-E-Y. Dr. Healy is a professor of history, as well as co-director of the Gender Studies Institute at Trinity Western University in Langley, British Columbia, Canada. She's currently the chair of the Conference of Quaker Historians and Archivists. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Robin Rogers Healy. Welcome to the program, Dr. Healy. Thank you, Sean. You know, I really appreciate this book coming from an expert such as yourself. I believe family historians all across the United States can benefit from reading it and applying the information shared. Can you give listeners an overview of your book? Quakerism in the Atlantic World, 1690 to 1830?
2: Well, the book deals with the period of Quakerism that we call, historians call, the long 18th century, which began in 1690, and we take it all the way up until 1830, which was after the period of what's known as the Hicksite Orthodox separation. So, for the authors and myself, I co wrote a couple of chapters in the book and edited the rest. But for the authors, what we wanted to do is we wanted to reengage the 18th century and question some of the traditional conclusions that exist about Quakers in that period and offer an opportunity for scholars to really reengage in ideas of at the 18th century and what happened so the 18th century for Quakers was a period where they became especially very distinctly how we might understand them stereotypically so the garb the clothing the use of simple plain language the vow first day second day those kinds of things really came to be very very important in the 18th century This book is the third book in a series called the New History of Quakerism series uh, published by Penn State University Press. It's currently the third of three. There are two more volumes in the series that are coming out, one on the 19th century, and then I have co-edited along with a colleague, Carol Dale Spencer one on gender and Quakerism in the 19th century. And so those books should be coming out in 2023.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Can you help us understand how this book can help family historians researching their Quaker ancestors?
2: I think there are couple of things. First of all, lots of people have Quaker ancestors. And if you are unfamiliar with Quakerism, the tendency is to make assumptions about your Quaker ancestors based on stereotypes that seem to have persevered about Quakers and Quakerism. So for instance, there will be this assumption that they were definitely pacifists, they were definitely abolitionists, they definitely believed in equality and those kinds of stereotypes. And it's not that those are always wrong, but they need to be nuanced. So for those who are interested in finding out more about their Quaker ancestors, this is a book that will help you to understand Quakers and Quakerism in a period where Quakers were very definitely on the move. At the beginning of the 18th century, Quakers were in England and Ireland, some in the Caribbean, and then along the mid-Atlantic seaboard in Philadelphia up into New York area. By the end of this period, however, Quakers had moved well into the interior of the United States. Meetings had expanded. And so there is a lot in here about Quakers generally and Quakerism in this period. Additionally, one of the things that I encourage folks who read this book to do is read the footnotes, look at the footnotes, look at where Documents are located. Quaker archives are incredibly rich resources, and there are so many archivists in those archives who are very helpful for family historians who want to find their ancestors, and you will encounter those references in the footnotes.
0: Where's the best place to get a copy of your books? You
2: can go to the Penn State University Press website. But my suggestion is to hit Amazon. The paperback version, which is going to be far more affordable for personal libraries as opposed to institutional libraries, the paperback is coming out um, at the beginning of October this year in 2022. And so it will be much more affordable.
0: Great. Thank you. Can people get a signed copy?
2: I have not signed any copies for sale, but I'm always happy to engage with anybody who has questions or even to sign a book plate and send it to somebody if you're interested. So for those who are interested in getting a signed book plate or their version of the book, you may reach out to me at my email address, which is Robin, R-O-B-Y-N-N-E dot Healy, H-E-A-L-E-Y, at T-W-U dot C-A.
0: Thank you for doing that for people.
2: You're welcome. I'm always happy to engage with anybody who is interested in the work that I've done and that my colleagues have done.
0: I think you do brilliant work. I'd like to thank you, Dr. Healy, for your time today and for your books. Listeners, pick up a copy of this book and the other books on Quakerism from Dr. Healy. This book can help you immediately understand more about your Quaker ancestors and the lives they led. Thank you, Dr. Healy, for being a guest on Book Shorts.
2: Thanks, Sean. It was my pleasure.
0: And now, back to Preservation Oaks. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and we're here today with Ms. Ann Rawlings from the Old Fort Genealogical Society located in Fort Scott, Kansas. Let's pick up where we left off. Welcome back, Ann.
1: Hi. Thank you.
0: Ann, if your building were to catch fire, what kinds of things would you grab on your way out?
1: My answer is absolutely nothing, because this building is made of cement and rebar, and it is very, very thick. The walls are plaster. The floors are cement. Upstairs in the big hall that will hold 2,000 people, they have granite flooring and granite walls. And so if there was a fire in our room, I would go put the fire out before the water sprinklers came on because that's where the damage would be. If there was a fire, it can't go anywhere else because we have enough room in between our Paper goods that it's not going to run anywhere. So I would have to say, I'd dial 911, I'd go try and put the fire out, and I'd wait for the fire department to come.
0: That makes good sense. What kind of funding model supports your society?
1: We're actually blessed several memorial funds and some in perpetuity. We also have donations from research, and we are probably one of the few societies that is not struggling financially for the last couple of years, because of this couple that put us on the list. I believe there were 10 nonprofits in the community that received a yearly stipend and it's the sizable yearly stamp uh, stipend. So we like to keep the donations coming in, but we don't have to rely on them to stay here. But we are still frugal because that's just what you do when you're a part of this kind of a facility.
0: Absolutely. So I know you told us you want to expand your space to double your space so that you can take in uh, more materials, especially from the Katy Railroad. What Mm -hmm. other funding goals do you have this year?
1: I am trying to get everybody that I know that uses Amazon to sign us up for Amazon Smile. We have a couple of others that have put us on their list for donations when they pass. And we don't use corporate funding at all because We want to be able to have a say-so. We don't need somebody telling us what we need to do. We do things that is going to bring us money, but we don't have to sit and wait for the money to come in. And with this expansion, this building is owned by the city of Fort Scott, and so everything has to go through them. They will have a crew that comes in and tears down the non-bearing walls and that sort of stuff. So we don't have to fund that. We can help if we want to, but we don't have to do it all on our own. We will need supplies when it comes time to setting everything up, but we've been extremely lucky with donations for that kind of thing.
0: Very cool. So what are your regular research hours?
1: We are open technically from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. at night, and I'm the one that's usually here. I will get here prior to 10 o'clock in the morning, and always leave after six o'clock at night. So I tell people, we technically 10 to six, Monday through Saturday, but if the open sign is on, come on down, and I don't care if it's after hours or not. I love it down here, and I'm willing to be here.
0: Very cool. Are there any holidays or special closures?
1: You know, it says so on the internet that we are closed for holidays, but I'll tell you, Christmas is the only holiday that I don't come here. A lot of times with these holidays, like Thanksgiving and that sort of stuff, the women need to get out of the house. And so they can come down here and flip through the pages of history and find out about those relatives we were just talking about on the dinner table.
0: Absolutely. Now, do you have any records that are restricted just to members or anything like that?
1: No, we do not. We want people to be able to go and find the information about their family. I had a 16-year-old boy that was researching his family, and he came in, and I told him where to start looking, and I didn't open the pages for him. I just said, in here, you're going to look for their name and then go to the page, and when he did, he was so excited because he found the information he was looking for.
0: Oh, that's so cool. (laughs) So can photocopies be made of all your records? Do you have a copy machine? Yes.
1: We do. So you can do photocopies. Most people bring their phones in and they take photographs of it. Um, oh, yeah. I wouldn't do that personally because I don't want to have to store information on another electronic gizmo. I, I'm more into wanting to touch it. Uh, taking a photocopy of it is the way that I would want. Right. But people can use whatever they, they need for their research and how they research, and that's okay.
0: That's great. Do you have any microfilm?
1: We do. We go from 1858 through 2019 for just one of the newspapers.
0: Wow. And can you copy and that? Can you print it?
1: Yes. Uh, we have an old uh, microfilm reader that we can actually print from. And we have to try it a few times to make sure that we get all of it because it's not the easiest thing to work. But visitors love to work on the microfilm.
0: Oh, Very cool. In your experience, having worked with so many people and families re- doing research in your facility, what kind of things should I bring with me? Is there anything I absolutely need to bring to be successful?
1: Most people come in with one particular name, and then they wish they had brought the whole folder with them that tells the family members, because a lot of times it's a family member that we have somewhere, and we can find this other person's name. So bring your material. Some bring big notebooks. Some people just a a little notebook to write in. You know, we have researchers that do it their way, which is the way they need to do it. But we don't restrict what you bring in. Now, you might. Not want to bring a great big computer down here because we do have stairs you have to come down. That would be a little difficult to handle. But, you know, most people are good with the phone or maybe a laptop, that sort of thing, so that their records are available for them to see at any time.
0: That's cool. Do you require an ID at all for... Looking at certain records?
1: No, nope, because when when I came here, they were getting ready to close the uh, genealogy because they didn't have enough volunteers to keep it open. Mm. And they were losing materials out the door. Well, I'm an organizer, and the first thing I asked is if I could reorganize. When they said yes, they had no clue what they had just given me permission <laughs> to do. <laughs> and I have one guy, in his 80s, and he comes in and goes, okay, where'd you move it to this time? Because he couldn't remember where I moved it to last time. And, and so with being organized, I want people to be able to go visit on their own, find their own information. But with the way that the desks where people sat, like the library and then the corresponding secretary and that kind of thing, were all in the back of the room. And they were buffeted by filing cabinets. Oh. So they couldn't see it here. And so people could walk up whatever they wanted. Well, when they open the door, they see me sitting at my desk. And then there's two other desks right across the entryway from me. And those will have volunteers in them as well. So for them to walk out with a bunch of our material, it has not happened since I've been here. And these desks are up front. They know that we're we're letting them look at things. They can touch it. They can make copies of it, whatever they need to do. But don't take it away.
0: That's fantastic. What are the best days to visit?
1: We have never been too busy to not let somebody else come.
0: Oh, good. Uh, there
1: have been times have three families in here at a time, and they would each sit in a different table. We have plenty of room, and so we just, we let them go.
0: Okay. When I come into town and I go to uh, the Memorial Hall, is there parking very close by? Is there a lunchroom or restaurants? Is there public transportation?
1: Okay. I'll I'll do the public transportation. There is not. We are a small community. There is, I think, a a taxi cab, but if you're driving into Fort you're gonna exit at Wall Street, go up the hill on Wall Street, then turn left on National Avenue and go down three blocks. That is, the courthouse is on the west side of the road. We are on the east side of the road. There is parking space on the north side of our building. There's parking on the street. So the only side you can't park on is the alley. And and so there is lots of parking and it doesn't cost anything. And as far as eating, I have a refrigerator with my snacks, but they're not for everybody. But we we have plenty of restaurants, fast food. We even have trucks here a lot of times in the area. And so within a few blocks you will be able to find food of your choice. And motels are just two blocks down the hill.
0: So I can come and go and get my lunch and then come back?
1: Yes. Yes, you can.
0: Uh, That's great. Uh, Listeners, I want to bring you up to date on the contact information for the Society. The address to visit is 221 South National Avenue, Fort Scott, Kansas 66701. The Society is located in the Memorial Hall. The front door is located on National Avenue. And I think you told me there's an open sign that blinks or something.
1: Yeah, yes, okay. it does.
0: The phone number is 620-223-3300. If you want to mail them, you can mail them at P.O. Box 786, Fort Scott, Kansas 66701. Their website is www.ksgenweb.org backslash society, backslash F T Scott. You can email the society at OFGSKS at gmail.com. And the society is a full service genealogical archaeology and historical research center. Hours are 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Monday through Saturday. But if the open sign is on, and says, come on down. Yep, All right. you're right. Thank you for that. What kind of outreach and education does the society undertake within the community?
1: We have joined with Historic Preservation Association and Fort Scott and Area Chamber of Commerce in giving local and visitors tours of different parts of Bourbon County. This is something that I started a couple of summers ago. There was a gentleman, a retired superintendent, that used to take people to tours up in the northeast corner of Bourbon County and tell the stories about how the Confederates came across the land there. And then the, the Freedom Colony, which tried to make the first airplane before the Wright Brothers. And they just couldn't get the engine light enough to get the plane off the ground. It's like, why are we not still doing that? Well, because he's getting elderly and he can't do it. So why can't we? So we started it. We are calling it the Bourbon County History Tour. We do carpool so people can leave if they need to. And we just stop wherever the location is that we're going to talk about next. And so we get a, a tour of places in Bourbon County that most people don't ever go or even know about.
0: Regarding that guy that's getting too old to do it, do you think you could do a video and put it on YouTube?
1: We are setting up, and I've done one so far, and that is a interview of a 101 year old man and he turned 102 the next week and what he remembers bourbon county like as a child and growing up going to school and then going off to world war ii and then being a farmer for over 70 years and that was very interesting so when i was telling somebody about that they said you know you need to get our old folks and you need to do videos of them because what we did a couple of years ago, and it was a good success, was we would take speakers, so our historians from the area, and they would have a night up in Memorial Hall and be able to tell everybody what their passion was. And so we had all kinds of things, local authors and all kinds of things. And that's one of the things that we're thinking of doing is with these interviews of being able to show them. During Time when we can't get out and go anyplace, but show them these interesting old folks.
0: Oh, that would be so good. Is the society sponsoring any kind of holiday events?
1: We don't sponsor, but we do participate. We just don't have the manpower to sponsor.
0: All right. I, I know you mentioned you publish a newsletter. What was its name?
1: Old Fort Log.
0: Old Fort Log.
1: And We just call it the Log.
0: And how often does that um, come it, out? Is it for members only?
1: Technically, yes, it's for members only. And it comes out quarterly and there'll be one out at the end of this month. And and it's each twelve or sixteen pages long. Has to be divisible by four. And so that works where that we have enough room to be able to put in everything we need to say. It is mailed out to some and then others get an emailed PDF of it, depending on how they want it.
0: So that's how you keep the community informed about the progress of the society in achieving its goals?
1: Yes. If we had extra uh, logs, I have taken them down to the Chamber of Commerce and that sort of stuff. And that's something that I'm going to be proposing, is that we print enough logs that I can then take them to different places, like a doctor's office or oh, urgent yeah. care or whatever, or sitting down, and they'll pick it up and maybe read it and yeah. and find out that they didn't ever know about, about it. And I agree. I think that should be out there. How else are we going to do it if there's only 40 people in bourbon county that would see it so that's an expansion that i'm i'm hoping that we can get here
3: shortly
0: that's great i think i interrupted uh, you did you want to say something else
1: well i'm just going to tell you there's two things that are coming up i started a new call for the local newspaper which is fort scott tribune and it's called OSCS researches and what i do is somebody comes in and says I've heard this term, eight-mile strip. What is it? So I can research it. Well, that just happens to be the question that somebody asked. And so my first two columns are telling about this eight-mile strip. And so it used to be done with OSGS. They always had somebody that wrote articles, and that hasn't happened in over 20 years. And so this is going to be things that we have researched and we can give specifications of where we found it or who we talked to, any of that kind of stuff. So so we're thinking about twice a month because I get kind of busy, but I think I'm going to do it weekly just because I don't want to wait that long to do the next one.
0: That's very (laughs) cool. Yeah, you probably have enough material, huh?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: That's great. Is your society doing any cemetery tours?
1: We did this summer the Fort Scott National Cemetery. And so there were three gentlemen who knew about where people are buried. So part of the cemetery is divided into Civil War and World War One, And then it kind of gets jumbled up. But there are other things like memorials and that sort of stuff that are there. And so he was able to talk about the cemetery itself, how it was put together, how to find things on the map, that sort of thing. And we had a guy who knew the Spanish-American War and World War II pilots because he was a pilot during the Vietnam War.
0: Okay, that's then very The cool.
1: other guy knew about World War One and the Confederates. And so we let them just do it, and I got to listen.
0: Yeah, that's the greatest part. That's good. Is the society still doing chamber coffee?
1: We did this year for the first time in quite a while. They had to stop the chamber coffee because of the COVID incident. But this year we did, and we almost filled our area with people. And for those that don't know about the chamber coffee, this is the Chamber of Commerce that asked their members to to take a Thursday morning eight o'clock and open their doors to other chamber members and then tell about their business, their location, that sort of thing. So we were able to not only give information on our society and how we work, but we were also able to do door prizes. And the door prizes were books that are published by OFGS.
0: That's very nice. Can you tell me what BOCO history tours are?
1: You know, it's funny, I'm wearing the T-shirt that has that very thing on it today. Oh, cool. um, so I've been talking about Bourbon County History Tours, and that's, that's what our logo is, is BOCO History Tours. And we strive to tell histories, like a, another one that there's a flyer on is the Marmonton Massacre. And we did this earlier in the spring, we did the Marmonton Massacre payback, and we tell the story of the Marmaton Massacre out at the actual site. The site is owned by a gentleman that came in a couple of years ago, and he says, do you have anything on Marmaton?" And I went, uh, one piece of paper. And so that got me to researching. We now have three four-inch binders full of information. Nice. And we're able to tell people how the bushwhackers came in what their pattern of travel was, about how many people there would have been. We looked through all of the books that had written about it and everything. So these tours, the BOCO or Bourbon County History Tours, go to cemeteries, military sites, old abandoned cities, wherever we think that there would be an interesting story. There's one that I want to be able to put together and so far I have uh, have the chance to do it. one of these summers we will have the african colony and it was just called africa it was african americans who came here right after the civil war they bought 180 acres they were entitled to be able to to get that they worked the land and they had their site you can see if you have lidar photography you can actually see the site and where the rock walls and the, the foundations of the houses and that sort of stuff were actually low. Now there's cows in that field, but and you can't see it with the grass growing up all the time. But I would love to be able to tell the story and the people who were involved in that because they helped the farmers be able to get their crops in. They dug ditches to try and get the water to go the right direction, all that kind of stuff. But those are the things we want to share with those who come to visit
0: that's fantastic you had a whole african community it's not there today
1: no it's not there today because part of the problem was that the children wanted to marry and there wasn't enough people because the other group of african-americans were in fort scott it was 25 miles from each other and that, that was way too far to walk. And so anyway, they did fizzle out, and and it's now part of a cattle ranch.
0: Wow. And it's time for us to take our second break for a few minutes. Okay. All right, listeners, stay tuned. We'll be right back with Ms. Ann Rawlings from the Old Fort Genealogical Society located in Fort Scott, Kansas. <laughs>
1: This program will now pause for universal identification.
2: The Old Fort Genealogical Society and support their efforts to bring history to life for you and your family. Visit them at ksgenweb.org backslash society backslash ftscott and learn more about this valuable local nonprofit organization. Donate join become a member and visit them today in the memorial hall at 221 south national avenue fort scott kansas 66701 you'll be glad you did
4: in my first life i was owned by a business and a seamstress named peggy used me every day all day and i worked like crazy for peggy then the business closed and i was inherited by the webster family and I worked like a couple of times a month, mostly for patching, but sometimes making dresses. Then, I was put in a basement, replaced by a newer model that used electricity. I lay there for years, collecting dust. They sat boxes on me. Finally, they pulled me out of there, and then the scariest thing in my existence happened, they had a discussion about throwing me away. You know, into the trash. Luckily for me they decided to sell me at a garage sale, and I went to March. Finally, she donated me to the local historical society. They cataloged me, shined me up, oiled me, and made sure all my parts worked like new. Now, I'm on display for the community to see every day, and they, marvel at the way I work. It took a long time, but I feel so proud that I can help others understand, the past, which I guess I'm now a part of. Rather than throwing it out, please donate historical records and objects to your local historical society today.
2: If you're a historical or genealogical society listening to Preservation Oaks and you'd like to be a guest on the program, please email
1: preservationoaks at gmail.com. Again, that's preservationoaks at gmail.com. Listeners, thank you for listening. You can comment anytime about the show or send suggestions by emailing preservationoaks at gmail.com. Thank you.
4: Nine out of ten family historians agree. Preservation Oaks is the best podcast on the internet.
1: This is Carrie Eilers from the Cedar Falls Historical Society and I listen to Sean Thomas Radcliffe and Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. This is Sandra Bengtson, the president of the Fremont County Historical Society. And I love listening to Sean Thomas Radcliffe on MicroStream Radio.
2: This is Stacey Gosling, the president of the Winnishik County Historical Society, and I enjoyed being a guest on the program.
3: I'd like to talk about volunteering, especially as a way to help your growing family. As we all know, there are a million things to accomplish and only 24 hours a day to do so. Many people have no idea how to find time to commit to their local museum, cultural, historical, or genealogical society. But it's a valuable investment in the community and your family on many levels and something that you'll need to make work to realize the benefits. Why does it matter to you personally to get involved in your community? Well, if you're a business leader, it's important to keep your finger on the pulse of the local business community. By doing so, you not only do your part to support local causes, but also stay aware of opportunities to grow your company. While there are a variety of ways to accomplish this, including social media, newspapers, television, social circles and networking, there is no better way than to build relationships by engaging yourself in these valuable organizations within the community. However, if you're raising a family and seeking to train your kids in the life lesson, quote, to do well for your community by doing good, unquote, then it's imperative to immerse yourself and your family in helping the community and having fun while doing so. Maybe you've wondered, how can I volunteer in my community, but still have a lot of fun? If so, being a volunteer at a museum, cultural, historical, or genealogical society could be for you. You'll find great opportunities to work with children in order to pass on knowledge and history. Not only do you get to teach the next generation of kids some valuable life skills and information, but you also get to enjoy the activities while teaching them. Volunteers typically help guide visitors, answer questions, answer phones, perform research, help file, work with children, and a huge number of other things that keep the society running smoothly. You also get to attend the events and learn more about your community so that you can pass this on to your family and friends. Your family will get a sense of belonging, a sense of place. For those who say they don't have time to volunteer, time is secondary. People with a family and other obligations can generally give just a few hours a week. You don't have to volunteer for hours and hours of time. You can start by micro-volunteering, with a shift between one to two hours. These societies host a variety of fun activities to bring members and non-members together. These organizations are non-profit organizations, meaning that they have very few staff members on the payroll, and rely on volunteers to assist with the rest of their activities. There are always things to do, and if you strike up a conversation with any of them, they'll be happy to help you find something that you will love doing, and that helps your family and community. It's an exalted feeling to volunteer your talent, plus the people you spend your time with and the experiences you gain are invaluable. There are literally thousands of people from all walks of life who volunteer their time, energy and resources to museums, cultural, historical and genealogical societies all across the country. If you enjoy books and quiet, the research library is the perfect place for you to volunteer. You will get to organize books and perform research tasks to help others document their lineage. You can be involved in digitizing records and photographs. You can enter records into a database or help the curator. These societies can offer many different activities for you to engage and help by doing something you love. Museums, cultural, historical, and genealogical societies generally work closely with community members, schools, and businesses. They often host events and fundraisers to bring information to the public and improve the success of the area. You can help improve your community by giving back to these organizations that make your community a better place to live. One of the most beneficial and perhaps underrated perks of starting your volunteer journey is the example it sets for those around you. Within your circle, volunteering is phenomenal for the wellness of your community, as you're demonstrating that helping is a core value. From your family members and friends to anyone else in your circle, your efforts to make the time and commit to your community won't go unnoticed. They will set a positive tone in your circle and instill a sense of direction throughout their lives because they will be at the heart of the community. Please consider volunteering with your family today. You'll be glad you did. And now, back to Preservation Oats.
0: Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. We're here today with Ms. Ann Rawlings from the Old Fort Genealogical Society located in Fort Scott, Kansas. Ann, we've learned so much about your community, about Bourbon County. Thank you so much for the information you provided. Really appreciate it. Welcome back.
1: Thank you, and I'm glad to be here.
0: So you mentioned that you need volunteers on a regular basis. I imagine that you have a few volunteers that are doing great work What kinds of opportunities for work does the society have for members in the public?
1: Basically, I'll tell you how I do it. I don't put anybody on a schedule. If they want to come in once a week, pick a day that they want to come in for a couple of hours, so be it. It's okay. But I don't put anyone on a schedule because life changes and I want people most of the people are going to be retired. And so I want people to be able to come and go as they need, go on vacation, do whatever they need to do. But the things that we need assistance with is returning the material to their proper place, data entry, filing, deciphering and to- typing old manuscripts, repairing books, organizing materials, talking to the public, researching or cleaning. Any of it is accepted.
0: So you've got something to do for just about anybody with any kind of skill or experience.
1: Yes. And, and what I do is I actually give them a tour of what we have out on the main floor. We don't go back into our two storage areas at all. But show them where things are. Show them the things that we might need and see what triggers them. Because every time I've done that, so they go, can I do that? Well, Yes. Oh, that's going to be so cool. (laughs) So I want people to be excited to come back.
0: Got it. So how does your society interface with other state, county, and regional societies in the area?
1: I started a few months ago joining in with a Zoom meeting, and it's now gone to, I think we do six a month, different organizations. But it's called the Four Corners Consortium. And this started because there were genealogical societies in Oklahoma that couldn't get together anymore, but they still wanted to stay in contact with each other. So they started a Zoom meeting and realized that, you know, we're leaving other people out. And so they then put it out via email to all of the genealogical societies in the four states Kansas, Missouri, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. And so those four areas, meet them once a month with a consortium, and we go over plans of action. We listen to a speaker, we ask each other questions, give counseling to others, and, and what we've found is that it literally is helping us to be better citizens of our society.
0: I hope you keep that going. That's really exciting.
1: They have plans of it. In fact, it's expanded to, like I said, six different times we meet because there are other agencies in the area that want to have their own Zoom meeting. And we follow to the next one. We can't get enough of each other, evidently. So we just (laughs) follow each other.
0: That's great. Now, you mentioned giving away some books that the society has for door prizes, And what kinds of interesting books has your society published or what kinds of books do they have for sale?
1: We have a lot of books for sale. This genealogical society has really put themselves into having historians, people who wanted to put it down in a book form and then give those rights to OFGS to publish as they need. And we had avid writers about all kinds of things. And so the majority of our resource materials are the either the the published books or the notebooks that that they have given to the society to use uh, in the future. But I'll just read up uh, titles of our most common ones. And it, it's sort of self-explanatory as what they're about. A World War One Soldier Story. Early Days of Fort Scott, written by one of our founders, Footprints of Bourbon County Families, Historic Reflections of Bourbon County, Kansas, Rails, Rivalry, and Romance, and then Murder and Mayhem books. One is sold out, but two is still available. Then we have the Old Settlers Association. These are little, almost like pocketbooks of meetings that used to happen, and they kept record of who were the original settlers in the area. And then an 1864-68 trial docket. Now, these are things that people don't usually publish, but we have people coming in and asking for that information, so we keep it up. But my favorite set of spiral-bound books are from an avid researcher who has since passed but left a legacy of works that is amazing. Carolyn J. Cooper, four books titled African-American deaths in Bourbon County, Kansas, African-American veterans of military service, African-Americans in Fort Scott, and African-Americans in the news. She has also filled 10 additional notebooks with her African-American research information. So we have an enormous amount of information with our African Americans that were here. There was a huge population, and they were very active in taking care of our community, and we need to honor them. And I use these books with research when I'm looking people up or looking for a subject matter. And so these are, are great works, but they're all available here
0: for purchase. What's the best way or the easiest method for people to donate to the society?
1: By sending a check or money order to OFGS, and we shorten it, like I said, to OFGS, PO Box 786, Fort Scott, Kansas, 66701.
0: Okay, got it. Can you tell the audience about any current initiatives or needs of the society that you want the people of your area to know about and support?
1: We have two large projects at this time. One I've already talked about was the expansion and how that we will Eventually, and this is my vision, eventually be open all the way across from west to east of Memorial Hall. The other one is photographic enhancement, archiving, and expansion of thousands of photographs that are available for purchase. We have a gentleman who has saved photographs and negatives from all different kinds of sources throughout Bourbon County. Now they need to be available for people to come and see and purchase if they want. We sell black and white photographs for $2 a piece, and they're a half by 11 size. And it's a variety of things. It can be a snowstorm or a flood, a new building coming up, old building going down, businesses, new signs, parade. Uh, All kinds of things are in this railroad, lots of trains. We want to be able to house those photographs. This one lady is redoing all of these. So she's taking very old photographs and enhancing them and making them look like they were just taken. And so we need assistance with that so that we can have even more. Right now, we have about 5,000 photographs that we have cataloged here, but we know there's at least 10,000 and maybe as many as 15,000 photographs that still need to be done. And that's not even getting in to the big steamer trunk that's in storage in back that's full of photographs. We want to get those photographs safe. And that's that's one of our major goals that we're working on.
0: That's a gold mine. In terms of history, it's a gold mine. And what are your thoughts about how best to keep history and community support flourishing for the current generation?
1: I'm passionate about this. A concern is the teaching of our local history. This is the goal of OSGS is to be able to pass on all the history already gathered and ready for researchers. Current history classes are no longer taught at the high school. To me, this is just crazy. There is an after-school class, but it is a no-credit activity. The kids aren't really interested. Since the students need to learn about their surroundings, OSGS would love to hold sessions either in our facility or upstairs in the auditorium. This would be a hands on class to eventually go into the field and maybe do some archaeology. We shall see what happens because, again, this is a city building. We have to go through the steps in order to have this happen. And you're talking about school children and all of the dynamics of transporting them here or whatever it's going to be. But we have, as historical and genealogical societies, the responsibility to make sure. That our kids, our future generation, uh, know how to research, know how to find the truth. Not going on their phone and listening to what somebody else is telling them that doesn't have a clue. Right. But how to fight for themselves. That's what they're sadly lacking, find the truth themselves.
0: Well, I hope you get that done. That's great. So, Anne, why is the society important to the community? And what makes your society different or unique from others?
1: OSGS is important to our city, county, and territory surrounding our location. Genealogy is history, and history can't happen without people. How will we learn from previous mistakes and triumphs if the lessons are not passed down to the next generation? Locally, we make a difference by reminding our citizens that we live in a very unique area that is chock full of history. History that is fun to learn and fun to see. And we're not through finding this history. We need the kids that can get out there and walk around the area and find that archaeology or be able to read a headstone in a cemetery so that we have that information that maybe we couldn't get out there and find ourselves. The thing that we need to remember is that there is always a new generation. There's always a new way of doing things. If we can learn from each other have the kids come and I can learn what the kids have to give or whatever the, whoever the volunteers are, what they use for research and they will then get an idea that what they're doing is typing on their phone or, or whatever it is. They're actually doing research, but it's not done to do a report or to do a book or whatever, and so it's our goal. And we have such unique information here with the Civil War and dragoons for crying out loud. You know, we've, we've had railroad wars, which is not unknown to happen in other areas as well, but where there were murders that happened because somebody wouldn't get off the land that the railroad wanted. So all of this stuff is important for our kids to be able, and our young folks, to be able to take pride in where they live and keep this alive.
0: A couple of things that I've learned is that you folks there in your area stood up for what was right, and that was hard for everybody in the community. And also the opening of America's Frontier, that was very unique for your area in the way that it happened.
1: You think about the show, The Little House on the Prairie. That family came through Fort Scott. That was a real family who traveled through our location. That's something that these kids watch, and they think it's just a story, but it's not. Right. We have so much of that kind of stuff that happened here. There's still so much to learn and find about the local Native Americans or those who passed through on the Trail of Tears. We need to keep it going and figure out the way to touch the kids. Way to touch the young adults who are working and trying to raise kids and get them generated and know that once they get to retirement age or they take a week off of vacation and stay home, they can come down here and they can do something that makes a difference in the way they
0: perceive things. And what's the best way for people to connect with someone in the society if they have questions?
1: They can always call it 620 223 3300 or send us an email. I have the email open all day long, so I'll be able to see it. Tell us, what is it that you're looking for? What is that nugget that you hit that brick wall and you can't figure out how to get over it? And see if we can't find it for you.
0: Is there any other information or any other message you'd like the community or members to know about?
1: OFGS volunteers love doing what they do, which is to give answers to questions. We are like a library but we don't have to whisper, and we don't check out books. We are here to teach, to learn, and to give back to this great community. OFGS is waiting for you to ask those questions, and let us help you.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today. You know, I've learned so much and had a great time. I'm really glad to meet you, Anne. It's great learning how much you and your society do to help the community and your members. Thank you. And with that, we'll end our time with our guest, Ann Rawlings, from the Old Fort Genealogical Society, located in Fort Scott, Kansas. Listeners, please stay tuned for my comments and wrap-up, which is coming up next. intelligent, hardworking, and driven person Ann Rollins is. She loves Bourbon County and it really shows. She has a clear vision for the Old Fort Genealogical Society's future. It's inspiring and Bourbon County is lucky to have her and the other volunteers that operate the society on behalf of the communities and members it serves. The most pressing priorities of the Old Fort Genealogical Society currently are number one, The Society needs more volunteers. There's all manner of things to do at the Society. Please join and volunteer with the Society today. Number two, the Society needs additional storage space. This is forecasted to occur when the Society expands their space on the lower level of Memorial Hall. And when that occurs, they're going to need people to help reorganize, to move books, to move shelving, that kind of thing. At the same time this expansion occurs, the Society will get needed space to house the Katy Railroad materials they plan to acquire. This is a very exciting time at the Old Fort Genealogical Society, so please join, volunteer, and donate to be a part of the action. Number three, the Society is currently working hard on digitization of photographs. They've already done approximately 5,000, but there's 10 to 15,000 left to go. So please help if you can. The Society is working on a wide array of projects to improve the community. The first is that there's an uncontaminated Native American mound city in the area. The Society is working on getting it preserved properly and opening it as a tourist destination. This will help the community so much. Just another reason to join, volunteer, and donate at the Old Fort Genealogical Society. Ann wants the society to complete further oral interviews with elders in the county. She's trying to ensure these interviews are saved for future generations. She could use some help identifying the elders and completing the interviews. Then there's communications for the society. First, Ann recognizes that the society newsletter needs to have a wider distribution across Bourbon County. Please help if you'd like to make a difference. The next communications initiative is authoring articles for the Fort Scott Tribune. This is a serial column in the paper. Anne can use ideas for articles and help in getting this done consistently. Anne and others in the society have been and will continue to sponsor a variety of events such as talks from the elders, historians, genealogical knowledge sharing, tours, and other events across the area. If you're a people person, and would like to help, please connect with Ann at the Society. Ann would like to start educating young people in the methods to research successfully. There's so much to learn and find. They need to know how to find the truth themselves. Some thoughts from Ann. When children are typing into search engines to learn things, they're doing research. I'd like to help find out the way to reach the kids and to help them understand how to find information. We can learn from each other. So if you're a retired educator in the area and would like to help, please connect with Ann at the Society. Ann told us about the history of the home she lives in and the fact that Susan B. Anthony came to Fort Scott and resided in the house while there. There's so much history in Bourbon County, Kansas. The society is supported by endowments, donations, and volunteers. Please help support the Old Fort Genealogical Society today. Ann reviewed the funding and fundraising particulars of the society, so you know where the funds are going and what the priorities are. It's an easy decision to support, join, donate, and volunteer with the Old Fort Genealogical Society. And you know, the Old Fort Genealogical Society in Bourbon County, Kansas, is truly one of our nation's preservation oaks. The contact information for the Society, the Old Fort Genealogical Society, the address to visit is 221 South National Avenue, Fort Scott, Kansas, 66701. The Society is located at the lower level of Memorial Hall. The front door is located on National Avenue. You can phone them at 620 223 3300 Donate, donate, donate by sending a check to P.O. Box 786, Fort Scott, Kansas 66701. You can find them on the web at www.ksgenweb.org backslash society backslash FTScott. You can email them at ofgsks at gmail.com. The Society is a full-service genealogy, archaeology, and historical research center. hours are 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Monday through Saturday. But if the open sign is on, come on down. Now, there were a thousand questions I could have asked during our time together, but I didn't in the interest of time. If questions occur to you and you'd like more information about anything we discussed, please connect with the Society via the contact information provided. If you're a listener in the area the Society serves or if you're a listener researching ancestors in the community the Society serves and you're not already a member, please consider joining and supporting the Society. I really hope this information helps the audience understand how valuable the Society is to the community and what kinds of excellent services they have to offer to their members and the public. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. Music used today is from Scott Holmes. Symbolbird, Chris Hagen, Track Tribe, and the 126ers. Microstream Radio is a registered trademark. You can visit www.microstreamradio.com. This broadcast is owned and copyrighted by Microstream Radio. It cannot be rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere without the written permission of Microstream Radio. Thanks to everybody for listening. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. See you all next time on Preservation Oaks.